And welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today, we're very excited to kick off our first episode of the new year with Dr. Jennifer Harmon. Dr. Harmon is an associate professor of psychology at Colorado State University. She studies various aspects of interpersonal relationships, including marriage, family, and power dynamics. She's written several books, including Parents Acting Badly, How Institutions and Societies Promote the Alienation of Children from Their Loving Families. In addition to her academic work, Dr. Harmon also does expert testimony in civil and criminal cases involving families. She serves as an expert subject matter witness to educate about parental alienation, domestic violence and abuse, false memories, and more. Aside from that, Jen and I go way back. We first met over 10 years ago as we were both contributors to scienceofrelationships.com, RIP. And Jen shares our passion for using science to make a difference in people's lives and help make the world a better place. So Jen Harmon, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Dylan and Manuel. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Of course. Um, So we're going to start off with a very basic question. What exactly is parental alienation and why is it an important topic for people to understand? Well, it's funny because if somebody who studied close relationships for a long time, I had never heard of it until I saw it happening to some people around me. I started reaching an age where people my age were getting divorced and having problems gaining access to their children or their children were being told told things that were not true about them and being turned against them. And I was just appalled by that. And I, I was, people would come to me and ask me, you study relationships, what's going on? And I, I didn't know. So I would um, go and try to do my literature searches and try to search out what it was called. And there was a term for it, it was parental alienation. And I was like, how come I'd never heard of this? So I then started kind of reading up a lot of the people who at the time were publishing on it were clinicians or attorneys who were in the front line. But I noticed a relatively lack of research from more kind of basic science, you know, perspective or um, from social psychology or developmental psychology on what was going on. So that's when I decided to really start studying this. So to I give you that as a backstory because (laughs) I think it can help understand then why I've devoted my career to this now at this point is because I've been really wanting to get a better understanding of it to help families and what it really is and what my research and the research of others has found is that it's an outcome associated with coercive control in a family. So when we talk about domestic violence, we know that there's different typologies, or at least, you know, the research indicates that people can be aggressive in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, So they can be aggressive in a very coercively controlling manner where they're trying to maintain power and control over another person. In other relationships, you don't have that kind of power dynamic. You have more of a use of aggression as a means to an end, 
You know, like if you're getting into an argument, you might fight and things escalate, but then person leaves the room and it calms down. <laughs> it's not a, it's more of a lack of ability to resolve conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, but what happens when you have a family where the children are pulled into that dynamic? And that's what, what happens with parental alienation is when you have a parent who is using power and control strategies against their other parent and they're using their child as part of that weapon is it like they weaponize them against the other parent and the term that sadly the, the field of parental alienation research has evolved as a separate line of research for a long time because a lot of domestic violence researchers didn't often recognize that males could be victims of course of control <laughs> And that's still an issue that I run into today that we can get into deeper later. Um, And so the fields of research really evolve separately. And right now I'm really focusing more on trying to bridge that gap again and bring it back together because we're talking about the same thing. Um, The parental alienation is just a term that we use to describe what happens to kids after they've been pulled into that conflict and they've aligned with one parent and they reject the victim, of course, of control. So, yeah, no, that that was that was helpful. Thanks. So, it, it seems like parental alienation really involves people being very shitty parents, and yep. these, <laughs> the, these negative behaviors are affecting their current or former spouses, and perhaps more importantly, their children, as well as the relationships between parents and children. And it seems like parental alienation can take many forms, um, some of which you describe as aggressive or pseudo aggressive. But it it also seems like there's a lot of kind of psychological manipulation. I noticed in one of your articles, you described things like exploitation of vulnerabilities and gaslighting. So can you can you describe those things in a bit more detail for us? Like, what are the common ways in which people engage in parental alienation? So the behaviors that a parent can use to alienate a child, there's thousands. (laughs) There's so many ways a parent can do it. But what it boils down to is the intent, you know, what, what the parent is trying to do by using the behaviors is to make the child believe that their other parent never loved them, abandoned them, is unsafe or unfit. And so they'll do anything they can to really make that happen. Because we know for children, it's not natural for them to reject a parent, even really horrible parents. They don't reject them flat out and say, I never want to talk to you again. Um, you know, even parents who are very abusive, we see, and if you've ever worked with child protection services or with people who were abused as children, they often feel very ambivalent about that parent. They love them, but they know that they have problems, right? Or maybe if they were sober, they'd feel better about spending time with them. And it's usually when they get older, they might realize, you know what? I need to draw some boundaries. I can't be abused by this person. But children aren't able to really do that. They don't recognize usually that they're being abused, which is why we have CPS, right? Um, And so that's where when you understand the types of behaviors these alienating parents use to make this happen, they're pretty bad, you know, and they're they're behaviors that are done over time. Some are very explicit. Some are very indirect, like guilt, making the child feel guilty for loving the other parent. 
Like if the parent says, oh, I'm excited to go visit dad this weekend, mom would get really quiet. And what is the kid going to do? Oh, that upsets mom. I'm not going to talk about dad anymore. Um, or they'll, if they're having only parenting time with one parent, that parent can control the narrative of what happened. Um, and we see that in these families, the parent who is the alienator often lacks boundaries. Um, they have some pathologies that, um, this is in the more severe alienation. I'm talking about the more extreme type. Um, in milder cases, sometimes parents aren't as aware that they're doing it. Um, but we don't see them engaging in some of the really bad behaviors. We see them kind of just making the kid feel guilty or trying to get their loyalty. The more severe it gets, you see parents doing a lot of other stuff like gatekeeping behaviors, like blocking access to the children, not relaying messages to them, saying horrible things about the other parent, like that they're that they're negligent or that they never loved you or they're only going to love their new husband or their new spouse and their new half sister. <laughs> they're going to forget about you. Um, they'll they'll use third parties against them, you know, spread rumors um, to try to turn everybody against that parent. You know, anything a coercively controlling person does is what they do with the children. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the behaviors are just horrible. I mean, the things that these parents can do and they don't they often don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They think they're just trying to protect their child from the other person. Right. I th I th so I think this is a really interesting dynamic and you know i don't do uh family or uh this type of research in family psychology or anything so it's, it's kind of a new area for me and so i really appreciate you coming on as our like expert on this on this area um one thing that came to mind for me when you were kind of giving us that uh, explanation about how kids will often not realize that there is something bad going on and they kind of just don't recognize it. Um, and, and think about this in relationship to alienation. So it seems to me if you're in a, let's just imagine a couple, uh, you're in a relationship and your spouse is cheating on you and your kid doesn't know, that's just going to affect, it's going to color the way you talk about your partner from there forward. It's going to color the way that you like interact with them on the phone and even the way you speak about them when they're not around. And I'm wondering if that, that color is that alienation. It's, it could, uh, to me, it could be unintentional. You're not trying to contaminate the relationship, but your partner did cheat on you and it's hard for you to forgive them. Right. So how do you, and, and, and that's one case where maybe it's not intentional. The other case is where the, the parent, the, the father or mother, whoever, the other parent, abuse you and so and 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 you're worried that they're going to abuse your child and so you are are leaving breadcrumbs or even trying to like actively persuade your child that this partner is actually not good for us me and and you my child and so i'm trying to push you away from that parent because they are an abusive parent and so are both of those cases of alienation they're just more justified or we would give them a different tech like label they're not necessarily parental alienation in that case i wouldn't necessarily call that parental alienation um well maybe the second one um it depends so the first one obviously when people divorce or separate there's animosity and conflict i mean it's and and there's a lot that you can expect especially early in the divorce or separation, right? And a lot of feelings about it that can affect the child. But that's different, you know? I mean, that that's that's kind of a, you know, it 
children, it doesn't, it's not going to turn a child against the other parent completely. They're going to be angry about it, right? Let's say they do come to learn about the infidelity. Um, and that happens. A lot of uh, counselors who work with families have to work with children who've been told or learned about it and help them work through it. But part of that is learning that nobody's perfect, right? And, you know, understanding that people make mistakes. And that's part of the therapeutic kind of recovery from that. In an alienation case, it'd be a parent who won't, won't let that go and will get the child to hate that parent because they did that to them, right? And and so it's a bit more active in order to get the child to really um, reject them. Because a healthy parent, they might be like, you know, I'm angry about this infidelity, but they'll still acknowledge some positive things about the parent, right? You know, and that's one thing that most laws across the U.S., like the best interest of the child laws, which are the custody sort of standard, um, they require that students or students, sorry, I'm like, here, let me back up. That's okay. okay. You, can, that you, can be, you can be in professor mode. We're, we're all, <laughs> yeah. we, we all know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. But, um, okay. Yeah, I'm having to do a disciplinary action with the student right now. So it's kind of fresh on my mind. Um, so, um, but we know that from best interest of the child standards in custody disputes that, it's expected that parents promote a healthy relationship with the other parent, not just sit back and do nothing, right? And just say, well, things are just going to resolve themselves. You have to be active in promoting a relationship when the child is not in the care of the other parent. And so for a parent, even if they're angry and upset, I mean, a healthy parent would also then still say, well, oh, that's fun. I'm glad you like running. Your dad liked to run or, you know, like do things that help the child still feel that there's some connection and that the parent still loves them, even though they made a mistake and acknowledge that, look, I'm angry. <laughs> it's OK to, for the child to hear that. That's healthy to learn how to work through those kinds of things. I mean, but it's not OK for the parent to involve the child in that kind of conflict. Right. Um, but it's OK to, to be honest with children. And, and hopefully a family in that situation would get some counseling and help work through that. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, in the second situation, what we're talking about there is where and, and this is why I say that, you know, parental alienation is a it's an outcome of course of controlling abuse and sometimes coercively controlling abuse uses violence or physical violence. Sometimes it's more psychological aggression and um, and uh, verbal ag abuse. And so a lot of times those parents don't want to leave the relationship because they're afraid they're never going to see their children again. And research we know finding uh, we know that from women and men who are victims, they report this as being one of the reasons they don't leave the relationship. <laughs> And so, of course, they're going to be concerned that if they leave the relationship, the children are going to be abused, too. Right. That is a valid concern. But the issue is, you know, you want to if a child is in that kind of abusive situation, mm -hmm. then you want to protect them from it. But you can protect children without turning them against that parent. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's ways to get. Um, and so usually, you know, you would have to get a protection order. You'd want to identify the ways that that parent is being abusive so that their time is limited with them. Um, but a lot of times parents won't get the right kind of legal representation early on in order to do that. Um, and then the child is left with this abusive person. And in that case, sadly, that parent who leaves anything that they do, they lose all power in that family dynamic. And then the children often then align with that abuser. 
against the other parent. Um, I just published a paper this week um, in the journal Partner Abuse, where we find that of the alienated parents in the sample that we had, over half of them had been victims of domestic violence. You know, hitting, screaming, punching, um, all of those things. And that's both male and female. Um, and so it is a concern. But the problem is once they become alienated, there's nothing that they can say or do to make that child align with them. The child's perception becomes really warped. It's it's kind of like reactance theory, right? You know, if you go to basic attitudes research, you you a child becomes polarized in their attitudes where their abuser is idealized. And the victim or the other parent is demonized, like they're seen as horrible. And anything that that other parent does is viewed by that child as a threat to the only relationship that they have left, right, is this other parent. And I think the important thing to realize, and this is the counterintuitive thing I run into a lot with clinicians and um, when I testify in court, is trying to help the court understand from the child's perspective they, be, they come to believe that the other parent never loved them and abandoned them, right? And you can imagine if you love this parent and you now believe that they don't love you, how does that feel? I mean, that's unre- we know unrequited love is horrible feeling, right? It makes people do all sorts of crazy things. Imagine you're a kid who has now come to believe this. And even if they spend time with that other parent, they have this schema, right? This, this cognitive schema. Like if they're told that this parent drinks too much, right? And they come to believe that. If that parent has one glass of wine, they're going to go home and say they drank a bottle. It's just they, they they perceive everything in this new schema. And there's that's where alienated parents are so disempowered. They can't, they just feel helpless because they can't do anything to change their child's perception of them. And it's it's a and you know my research we find that alienated parents are like over half of them have cons- considered suicide in the last year. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's really bad um, the impact that it has on the victim of this. Um, so yeah, I want to pivot to that too. Is like what are the factors that predict when somebody engages in parental alienation? And I do want to talk about just individual differences. So things like personality traits or even psychological diagnoses of mental illness or something like that. But I think the other thing, uh, particularly as a social psychologist that matters to me is social context, right? I would imagine, and again, I don't know anything about this literature, so I'm just like positing a hypothesis and I'd love for you to, to help me understand it better, is it's got to correlate with SES. So if you're in kind of more strenuous, more stressful life circumstances where it's just hard to make it on a day-to-day basis, you're living paycheck to paycheck maybe, um, or you just live in a really part, uh, rough part of town or something, um, uh, there's got to be hard, more instances of, that is a predictor of uh, parental alienation. So what we find in the research so far is that the people who are more likely to perpetrate parental alienation are not dissimilar from people who perpetrate coercive controlling abuse. And this is why in my research, we're finding it's the same coin, right? It's not just two sides of the same coin. It is the same coin. We're talking, we're just to use different words to describe the same thing. Um, these are parents and individuals who have often unresolved trauma from their own past, you know, maybe from their own Um, They were in an abusive relationship where they saw parental alienation modeled in their own family. We do know the research shows it is intergenerationally transmitted. 
So they become a perpetrator or a victim later. I've worked with a lot of parents who are now alienated from their children. And it wasn't until it happened to them that they realized that they had been alienated as a child. So it's like a double whammy of realizing the loss that they had with this other parent. And then now they've lost their own children. And so past, you know, trauma like that is, is a, is a correlate of that personality disorders. So um, in the more severe cases, we find more borderline or narcissism. I've measured the dark triad in a study that I did using, using national um, representative samples. Um, and we don't really find a lot, but it's hard to find that. You have to find more, you have to, I think we need a more clinical sample in order to really see whether or not that's there. Now, I've published uh, two polls or, well, I've, I've conducted three polls using representative samples of adults. Um, one with random digit dialing from North Carolina, um, another one using national polls in a panel survey that we did using Qualtrics. And, and that was in the U.S. and Canada. And we found that actually some of the, the, those demographic predictors that you would think would be there, we didn't find evidence for that. We didn't find their gender differences and who's likely to be a victim of parental alienating behaviors. We didn't find SES differences um, or education differences, racial differences. It's hard to identify people who a lot of people think they've been alienated when that's not how we would define alienation. <laughs> or there's people who are being alienated and have no idea. So first, it's hard to identify people that would meet our definition. I've gone to court cases, but U.S. court cases at trial level are not published or they don't require to be published. So you can't get a good sample of those. So right now I have a paper um, that we just finished a study using Canadian ca uh, court cases because they do publish trial level cases. So I can get a more representative sample of what the courts are dealing with. But SES, a lot, a lot of parents can't even afford to go to court. You know, to go to court and fight for custody, some of these parents are half a million dollars in or more. They've lost everything mm -hmm. financially trying to fight to see their children, wow. paying mental health providers, therapists, evaluators, their lawyer fees. They've gone to back to court, you know, 20 times. I mean, they have nothing left. And so I think not every parent can afford that. Some just don't even bother and they walk they walk away because they can't do it. Um, we're about to launch a study. We just got some funding to do a prevalence study in the UK to compare it to the US. Um, and we're going to be looking specifically in one survey, looking at fathers, um, because the, the granting agency was interested in how alienation is affecting fathers. Um, but then the second study is going to look more at the general population of young adults to see how many of them would meet our criteria for having been alienated from a parent. That That's great to hear. I, I'm you know happy that you're getting funding to continue this line of research. So one of the things that came up in the the research and came up a little bit in our conversation so far is concerning gender stereotypes. So let's talk a little bit more about that and what specific gender stereotypes are at play here and how they're linked with parental alienation as well as the community responses to parental alienation. So I've published a few studies looking at um, some of the stereotypes we have about gender um, related to parenting. One of the first studies we did was back in 2016, and we looked at if you take the alienating behaviors, which are not good behaviors, right? <laughs> and you ask people to rate how 
their their acceptability. You know, like if a parent tells a child the other parent that never loved them, how acceptable is that? And so we we took an MTurk sample, um, you know, from Amazon um, of parent people who were parents to fill out our survey, and it was an experimental design where a third of the people were told that the parent who was doing these behaviors was a mother, a third were told it was a father, and a third were told it was just a generic parent. And we asked them to rate each behavior on how acceptable it would be to do that. We found that even though people rated those behaviors compared to more positive behaviors, they rated them as less acceptable. But if a mother did it, it was more acceptable than if a father or a generic parent did. And we, we think that that's because people kind of give a lot of excuses for mothers, like oh, she must be protecting the children from an abusive father or um, mothers can do no wrong, that type of thing. So so that was like why my first kind of research question into that about whether because that has impacts for custody evaluators and other people who are looking at the family and seeing these parents do things. And maybe they make more excuses or allowances for mothers in this kind of family dynamic. Um, whereas if a father did the same thing, it would be viewed more negatively. Yeah, I, I want to double click on that because this is such a, an interesting finding um, with the, the 2016 paper. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I found it fascinating because if we accept that people might on average think of mothers as like more empathetic or nurturing, you'd think maybe that they would judge that behavior even more harshly when it comes from a woman. But instead, you found the opposite, that there was this kind of moral licensing effect. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't really even expecting that either. I thought I thought maybe fathers would be viewed maybe or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe fathers are just viewed more harshly for doing it. It could be the other way around. Like maybe that would be. But the generic parent wasn't. The generic parent was rated more like the father. Yeah. So I, I've been kind of like trying to unpack what that means. And, so, and I have some other research that we're working to publish where. We find that, you know, when mothers do violate certain norms, such as, you know, they work full time, that can be used against them, right? Saying that she's not motherly enough. Whereas if a father is more of a stay at home father and more involved with the children, they kind of get more gold stars for that. Right. So the, the stereotypes can be a little complicated when we're looking at whether people rate the parent as a fit parent. I think women do face backlash if they... Um, do that. But we have a paper that we found um, the, the results. We haven't published it yet, but we should be hopefully soon. We're going to run another study because we want to verify it. Um, but we found that fathers, they weren't punished in terms of parenting time. Like they were seen as better parents if they were kind of the stay at home parent. But financially, if they got divorced, they were punished for that. So the backlash seemed to be more in areas that aligned with their gender expectations. So for women, the backlash for working full time came with not being perceived as good of a parent. For fathers, they're viewed as not being as good of a breadwinner and they're penalized for that. I think part of like to get to the second part of your question, Dylan, you know, when I first got into this, a lot of the parents that I talked to who were alienated were fathers. Right. So I kind of assume that this is more likely to happen to fathers than mothers. And a lot of it is because how custody is assigned and other things. And this kind of also gets to your question earlier, Manuel, about factors. I think child custody decisions and how much time parents get really contributes to this. Um, and I, in a number of ways, and I can get, I can unpack that too, if you want me to, but yeah, please. Um, 
Um, but, and this is one of the reasons why I'm actually president of the International Council on Shared Parenting. <laughs> so, because I think shared parenting is a presumption of that is really important um, because we know that outcomes for children are so much better after divorce, even in high conflict divorces, if the kids have quality parenting time with both parents. Now, there's a presumption, though, that it's rebuttable because you have to assume that both parents are not abusive, right? So if there's an abuse or legitimate issues, then that wouldn't be the right choice, right? You would not want children to be with an abusive parent a lot. Or if they are with them, it should be protected time, supervised um, or therapeutic supervision, right? But, you know, I do know that in cases where there's parental alienation, if the children are in the full-time care of the alienator, the alienation can get very bad very quickly (laughs) because they're controlling the narrative. They have very little time with the other parent to really get other information that might contradict the narrative that they're having. Um, you, we know from attachment research, you cannot maintain an attachment without quality time. And right. it's not just a couple hours a week or, you know, or a couple hours every month, right? Two weekends a month. Really? That's not a lot of time. And then, you know, so a parent who only has that much time, of course, they're going to try to maximize that time as much as possible. Right. But then these parents are accused of being Disney dads. Right. You know, you know, doing only these fun things with their kids. And it's like, well, if you only have a window, of course, you're going to try to do as fun things as you can. But even that's used against those parents because that's the alien. It's too threatening to the alienator. Right. The alienator. Um, what motivates coercively controlling people is the need for power and control. And so when they feel like they're losing that, that's when you see escalations in the alienating behaviors. I was on a case once where the father was the alienating parent and the mother had a restraining order against her temporarily because there was an allegation of abuse against her. About a year later, they they found it to not be true, but it took a year to investigate it. So she had a whole year where she ne- hardly ever saw her children. And if it was, it was on Zoom and it was supervised by somebody. Um, but she had educational decision making of her kids. That was the only power she had in the family. Like the dad had um, medical decision making. He had all custody of the kids. And so mom made an appointment with the teacher to go and learn about what the kids were doing because she needed to hear their updates on their academic progress. Dad was trying to undermine her because he wanted to get the decision making for everything. So he called the school to find out when she'd be there. And he showed up with the kids in the hallway at the school, knowing she would be there at that time. And so the kids were like, mom, you know, running up to her, but there's a restraining order. So what's she going to do? She could hug them and say, great. Or she can say, walk away because she doesn't want to get in trouble. But then the kids are going to say, mom doesn't love us. Let's just confirm that. And sure enough, so she said, oh, I love you guys. She kept it short. She left the school. Sure enough, dad called the police and he went and filed a motion with the court saying she wasn't following the court order and all this stuff. That's an example of what these parents do. That's like a game of chicken. It's this power. And so the more custody a parent has, the more power they have. And they leverage it, right? They they leverage everything they can get to maintain their control. 
And that's kind of so I don't think I, th- I don't think it's about gender. I don't think it's about other things. It's about a pathology that people some people have to maintain power and control. And I and I imagine it can be very challenging even for the experts in this area to come in and identify this because you're going to get you're going to hear different things from different parents. And like you said, with the case where the mother, there was an allegation of abuse who took a year to rectify that. And meanwhile, the father is doing all these terrible things. I am curious to know what the what penalties he received after it was, you know, discovered that. All, he he was doing all these horrible things, but but I think your point is well taken that there's not necessarily a significant role of gender in the general scheme of things for parental alienation. But you also have some data showing that moms might be more likely to engage in indirect uh, aggression, and that might make it harder to detect. Whereas you know men might be more likely to engage in acts of overt aggressiveness that are easier to see, even for someone who's a non-expert, but certainly for those who are experts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not so much who does it um, that you see the gender differences, but it's kind of more how. And we see that with other kinds of aggression. You know, women right. do aggress a little bit differently than men, depending on culture. Right. You know, if we're talking about U.S. culture, I mean, you know, we find sometimes there are some differences in other cultures, too. But but, yeah, women tend to use more indirect aggression in general. Um, and so we found that, yeah, moms tend to use a lot more third parties. You know, they they use they try to turn teachers and other people against the parent um, because they form coalitions. You know, that's how women aggress. They like to form coalitions with other women and destroy the reputation of the other person. Men do that too, but it, um, we found that fathers also tend to be a bit more direct in how they do it. They will ha- have a lot more confrontations in public, for example, or at parenting time exchanges, or yeah, though that they engage in kind of a lot more direct kind of blocking of contact. You know, like you know, for example, changing the kids' phone numbers, or you know, not not you know, they'll move and not share the information of where they moved. You know, a lot more blatant kind of things. It's hard to kind of when you're studying aggression post divorce, it's hard because they're not there's not as many opportunities for direct contact. Right. And so I think you're always going to see a little bit more indirect relate uh, aggression is because they're not always in the same room together anymore. Um, But you'll see the aggression come out in emails and text messages. And so this is where for people who are custody evaluators or other people, um, we wrote I wrote a book chapter um, that appeared in a book in 2020 called Parental Alienation Science and Law. And we reviewed, um, it was, it, the chapter was on the kinds of behaviors that parents do. And we mapped them all onto the power and control wheel of the Duluth model um, to show how it's coercively controlling abuse. And what we have a whole section in that chapter where we talk about what kinds of data would you look for? Like, where would you go to find these behaviors if you're an evaluator? Because a lot of these things happen behind the scenes. You know, like you're not going to interview somebody and you can't just trust everything that they're going to say. Right. You know, um, you want to look for objective data. Um, and so some of the best ways to get it is just download the entire text message history. Um especially from the kids and the, and the parents together Um, emails. um, A lot of times when people divorce, they have these programs called like talk our family wizard or talking parents where they force the parents to communicate 
through the software so that that software could be downloaded and entered as court ev- like evidence in the court to show them how the communication is going. Sometimes then that those kinds of communications can be mediated by somebody to help minimize the conflict. <laughs> but sometimes when people know that their communication is being publicly monitored, they're a little nicer. And that's the goal is to try to minimize the conflict. You know, that's what they're trying to do. All right. So I've seen parents go to doctors with the kids and say that the kid's, you know, father is an alcoholic, even though he's not. Or they'll go Mm. and say, mom has is uh, bipolar, (laughs) even though she's not. Right. But they'll write Mm. it into the notes. And so and the tragic thing is, and that becomes part of the kid's medical history. And they they operate thinking that that's a precondition for them or it's like a, a risk factor for them but you'll they'll do that and, and unless you go and subpoena those records or get them you you won't see the things that these parents are doing you know they'll go to the dentist and say horrible things about the other parent they'll take the parent's name off of school records or emergency contacts so if something happens at school these parents won't even know about it and it's all designed to make the parent look like they're bad parents you know or They'll take them to the doctor, get penicillin or whatever medication for something the kid had, send them over there for the weekend and not tell the parent. So the kid doesn't take the medication. And then, oh, look, look how what a bad parent you are. <laughs> Yet they were never informed. You know, so I think, you know, it's, what's important to really understand in this kind of thing is not just the behaviors that these parents are doing, but it's how they're doing it and when they're doing it. And that helps with diagnoses. You know, so when whenever I testify in court, um, I published a paper in 2021 where we found that about 30 percent of appellate cases where alienation was found or alleged to have happened, the court decided that they didn't have any mention of third parties like a custody evaluator or therapist. So the court was able to look at the evidence and say, oh, this is what's going on. And we have a in our new study that we have using Canadian cases, trial level cases, we found the same percentage. So courts aren't needing experts, so they're not needing clinicians or to tell them what's going on. They can evaluate the evidence presented. And what we find is that the 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 we found that the courts, if they know to look for these patterns of behaviors, right, and they're looking at whether or not they're happening at predictable times then it's a sign that it is more of a coercive controlling dynamic. And then it's more likely than not an alienation case, especially when we see what happens to the children. Um, not all kids who are exposed to alienating behaviors become alienated. Thank goodness. Right. You know, so a parent could be horrible and some kids just miraculously like <laughs> get through it. Um, we don't know a lot about what, what makes some kids resilient. I wish we what, did. What it- what what is the analogy? Some kids are orchids and some are uh, dandelions. I forget. I forget the exact analogy, but there's like ki- some kids who will thrive in even extreme adversity, and some kids who really need a lot of care and support in order to thrive. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think that totally holds true here because it's just like. It, when it's severe parental alienation, most scholars in this field recognize it as psychological abuse of children. Right. Um, it's hard to know where you draw that line. I mean, we know that from other areas of research on child abuse. There's not even good consistent terminology in what we mean by child abuse either. So um, it, it becomes a problem. It's when do you say this 
this needs a child protection response. You know, like at what point are children really hurt? Um, we do know that kids who've been alienated have different um, what we call manifestations or different symptoms um, or signs that we don't see with kids who've been abused in other ways. And so that's kind of one red flag to say these kids are more likely alienated than they are estranged would be another alternative. I've seen some people say, well, the reason the kid's rejecting this parent is because they're abusive. It's like, well, okay, first we know that most kids who are abused don't reject their parents. <laughs> and second, there are certain things that you would expect to see in a, in a, in a strange child versus an uh, alienated child. And there's research to support that. So, Yeah, it seems like there's a several different terms that are kind of interrelated here, like psychological abuse and parental alienation and estrangement. And yeah, so it, it, it does seem hard. I'm wondering if you could just disentangle psychological abuse from parental uh, alienation specifically. Well, psychological abuse is kind of, it's still, it's a pretty broad term too. Um, but it's, yeah, it's like, you know, where you make a person feel less than or um, um, question their reality, question, um, you know, that'd be kind of gaslighting tying into the psychological abuse. Um, you know, it could be, you know, verbal insults or things like that that make the person feel like there's something wrong with them. You know, it's probably the easiest way, the most condensed way that I like to kind of explain it. Um, and for kids who've been alienated, if they believe this other parent never loved them, it does make them believe that they're they're less than, like they're not good enough. You know, I'm not a good enough person. This parent doesn't love me. This, And that parent's half of their identity, right? And if if they're alienated, they never grieve that because they're so angry. You know, you imagine like, I've, I've seen like, you know, these kids when they're severely alienated, they tell this other parent to essentially F off, right? You know, they say, I never, I won't even go to your funeral if you died. I hate you, never call me again. If they're forced to go to their house for visitation, they run away. They threaten to kill themselves or kill, hurt other people. These kids have attacked parents with knives. They've destroyed their property. These are the really extreme cases. And, but what that tells you is how badly that kid's hurting. I mean, you know, we know if the kid's been alienated, they're not, that parent really hasn't done anything to warrant that level of hostility. And the kid is so hurt and pain. You can't look at that and say, this kid has not been psychologically abused, like to, to come to believe that this person never loved them, right? Or is hate them so much. And they can't grieve it because we know to grieve someone, you have to acknowledge the good and the bad, right? You have to work through old memories and things. And it's too painful for these kids to do that. And so, we know from the grief bereavement literature that if you don't resolve grief, that can have serious long-term effects, right? Um, like for kids, for example, who don't grieve the loss of a sibling who died, we know that that can relate re that's related to depression, anxiety, and other long-term outcomes. So you can imagine then not only the alienation and the psychological abuse that's led the child to believe these things, but then also the unresolved grief on top of that. Um, and so a lot of there, there's actually a lot of um, now young adults who were alienated as kids who are coming forward and starting to, in fact, I'm even collaborating with someone who's a researcher. That's my, my study in the UK. 
he was alienated from his mother. Um, or no, he's alienated from his father by his mother. Um, and so he's now, he's studied male victimization of violence. And now he wants to really start focusing also on alienation. So, but he has, he comes at it from that perspective of somebody who's been alienated. Um, and it's a different perspective than from the parents, right? And so um, it is a, you know, an estrangement. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. It's, it's easy to get, <laughs> there's so much to unpack. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, estrangement is different because that's where you actually have a parent who um, did something wrong that would warrant the kid's rejection. You know, gotcha. like let's say they had a substance abuse problem or they were neglectful or um, they had really bad parenting skills. Like, I mean, really bad. It has to be like way outside the norm. Right. You know, because there's a normal range of parenting and some parents aren't great, but they're not, you know, nobody's perfect. But this would be somebody maybe who has a very serious mental illness, for example, and is incapable of really kind of reacting to the children's needs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be an estrangement you know, thing. Um, I'm collaborating right now with um, Dr. Christina Sharp, who's at Rutgers University. Um, she's a communications professor. She's published a little bit on parental alienation, but her main focus is on estrangement mm-hmm. and understanding um, how people learn to separate from parents who were not healthy. Right. You know, and and she and I have had many discussions about the difference between estrangement and alienation. And we're actually about to start a study looking at fatherlessness in the African-American community um, and trying to understand how much of it is estrangement, how much of it is alienation and how much of it is driven kind of by history and context. And it's going to be really interesting to, to work together on that. Yeah. This does seem like one of the crux issues here for a lot of people that a lot of people will hear what you're saying and say, I bet that that person did something that is making their partner feel like they're not a safe person for their child to be around. And they're trying to and the the parent is doing using whatever tools they have in their toolbox to push that person out of the child's life because they think it would be better for them. And so in that sense, it's not about power and control. It's not about manipulation. It's just about like them trying to do what they think is right for the kid. And I guess you would call that estrangement and the, the, the delineation between estrangement and uh, alienation is really like what we need to figure out. Um, Because sometimes you made the point yourself, like sometimes uh, that's like, you know, ideally you don't say this person never loved you. That's just like not a helpful thing to say to a child ever really. But I mean, but sometimes you might have to say like, sorry, dad is, has X problem. And that's why we're just not going to be seeing him anymore. And that you can utter the same sentence in a different context and it's alienation, or you can utter it in a different context and it's estrangement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to give you an example, like, let's say you have a parent who's got severe mental illness, right? And like bipolar, not taking medication, right? You know, and not getting it under control and they're a danger to everybody, right? You know, because we, we can, we know that in very severe cases, that can be a bad and then, so let's say the court intervenes and the children now don't see them unless it's supervised. Now, the healthy parent, or if it was a healthy parent, that parent would communicate to the children, look, dad or mom has some problems. They still love you, but they need to take care of those things right now. Like it's a parent's job to help the children make sense of the world, 
right? You know, I mean, anything that's scary, where do kids, if you're experiencing something in the community that's scary, kids look to you on what should I do, right? It's your job to help children interpret and make sense of it and understand and not overreact or, or freak out or you want to calm them down, help them understand different perspectives because children aren't capable of that yet, right? Their brains haven't developed yet to do that. And so I think for a parent, if you have another one who's not healthy or has a situation, a healthy parent won't take advantage of that <laughs> to, and use it against them, you know, because then you have what we call a hybrid situation where the kids are not only estranged, but they are also alienated on top of it. That's horrible. But it does take a very healthy parent person to prevent alienating a child when there is estrangement. Because that parent, you know, might have their own feelings about it, right? You know, you know that that parent's not good. But at the same time, you don't want the kids that, that still have the kid's identity and you still had a child with this person, right? And you still, <laughs> there's something positive about them that the kids, it, it is still important for them to know them. And the children have a right to make that decision themselves when they're old enough, right? And not, not have you make that decision for them. I think a really good example, if you've ever watched Red Table Talk with um, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, she has a kind of a, a Netflix show. They did a show on parental alienation recently. This is, I think, mm -hmm. September. And they had like Teddy Riley on there because he was alienated from his kids. And, it, it, you know, so it was good. Dr. Amy Baker was on there talking about research. And but Jada Pinkett was having a discussion with her mom around the Red Table. And her mom said, they, they were talking about this estrangement issue because she was like, you made me go see my dad and my dad did all these horrible things. She's like, why did you not step in and like prevent me from going over there? And she's like, well, you were never in danger and you had to figure that out yourself. Like, yeah, I know, dad, I have my own feelings about it, but I wanted you to have your own experiences with your father for you to make. I mean, and maybe your relationship with him would be different than mine. Right. right. Or, or people yeah. change, you know, like and so that, that sounds much healthier, yeah. even even from a lay person's perspective. <laughs> it sounds like any any time you have a situation where like we, we were talking about this in some other context, the, the right response when something bad is happening should be clarifying rather than obscuring that. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a good delineating point here. But yep. between the, the healthy and the unhealthy responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there could be a point where you tell the children more. But I, this is where I think for parents who are really struggling in that kind of situation, I always tell them, get some psychological help. And if you have right. to disclose right. something to the children or coaching, parenting coaching, and if you have to disclose something, you know, work with a therapist to figure out how best to do that so that it's in a way that they understand based on their developmental, you know, psychology and all that and um, their cognitive capacity and also help them understand. Yeah, nobody's perfect. It's not about you. This person has this issue. Um, and so and they're doing their best or, you know, and may, it may not even be true. I don't know. But you don't want the kid to feel <laughs> that they're not loved. Right. And, you know, you want them to still and, you know, maybe that parent will get pulled together and come back. And I find it hard to believe anybody who has a child doesn't ever, you know, love their child on some level. You know, um, sure. a, lot, a lot of them are in their own pain and they're not able to deal with it. And so that's parenting 101 right there. <laughs> yeah. And I, 
I feel like what we're kind of circling around is what can we do to prevent uh, uh, or to otherwise deal with parental alienation? And I think the things that we're talking about right now are kind of like, uh, how can we raise awareness and increase people's propensity to do the right, to, to engage in the right kind of criticism of their partner, right? Because there is a... If you're going to be honest with your kids, sometimes your your partner screws up, and you, you kind of have you. If you want to be honest with your kids, you have an honest conversation about, "Hey, dad cheated on me, or mom cheated on me, or did something," and we're talking about it. I want you to know that he he or she still loves you, but at the end of the day, like that is kind of the you're, it's this balancing act, and admittedly, that's got to be hard. Like in the moment when you've been betrayed or hurt by your partner to give this like balanced view to your child um, at that exact moment. Um, I think you uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That seems like a kind of parenting uh, parenting uh, approach that is more healthy. Um, but uh, there are other levels we could talk about, like uh, clinical levels, like what should in the therapy or social work context how do we diagnose this problem? How do we treat it? Um, there's also an educational aspect to this, maybe in the education uh, around sex ed and that kind of thing that we have, like these conversations about approaches to interpersonal relationships. And then at the policy level, like what what do we do? Um, how do we empower our institutions to deal with this problem? So you, you're, you're working on court cases and stuff like that. I'm curious if you have a, a what, what are your prescriptions for how we should deal with these problems? I think you touched on kind of, you know, you have to go at it at every level, right? Um, you know, part of it is helping people really realize the difference between alienation and other kinds of conflicts so that, you know, people don't assume that it's happening. Just, you know, just because your kids don't aren't available to talk to you at 6 p.m. on a day that they're with the other parent doesn't mean they're the other parents alienating you, you know, right. Right. It's not even, and we wouldn't even call that an alienating behavior. The kids might've just been busy that day. Right. You know? And so, but some parents will overreact to that kind of thing because they're upset. They couldn't get in touch with their kids. And so, no, I mean, a lot of times I have to educate, I work with a lot of attorneys to help them better talk to their clients and try to really clarify what the problem is in that family. We do have um, more research now on kind of assessment tools, and um, we have something that's um, a nice summary of the research that we have so far called the five-factor model, which is a useful, I think, diagnostic framework that courts and clinicians can use. It's not a diagnostic tool, but it helps them know from the research what kinds of features are, are you most likely to see in an alienated family um, or a family where there's been alienation. Um, and so it's a, it's a nice kind of checklists for lawyers and, and judges that I find useful in court. Um, I've conducted two trainings this last summer um, for the judiciary in Oklahoma and Virginia. And so that's something that was part of our training to help them understand. And I've had lots of people email me, judges email me afterwards asking for advice on what to do on particular cases and stuff. So it is nice to see kind of the impact that it can have and and giving them the tools to to use and better make good decisions for families, especially it's based on science. It's not based on clinical opinion per se. Not that there's anything wrong with clinical opinion, but there's limitations to it. And I would rather make a decision based on science, you know, and empirical data than an, a clinical impression alone. Um, and so, um, 
but but I do and I, I do find a change over since I've been doing this research. I have a lot of clinicians, marriage family therapists reach out to me for articles and trying to attending trainings. There's more trainings that have been developed to help um, educate people about it. There's a new postgraduate training program out of um, Malta, but it's virtual and online. So clinicians and other people can take postgraduate certificate training and learn about it. And that's new. That's the first one. Um so there's changes that have been happening there in terms of there has to be legislation. I mean, there there are some countries like Brazil that have criminalized or kind of quasi criminalized parental alienation because they recognize it as child abuse. Other countries, there's a lot more resistance to that. Um, and there are a few legislative bills that are being proposed to try to get more formal recognition of it. Um, there have been many attempts to uh, to it in the past, but it's often met with a lot of resistance from advocates. Um, but science is evolving a lot. I mean, right now we have a proposal that we're submitting to the American Psychiatric Institute to recognize this as a problem that should be entered in the DSM. Um, and so those kinds of things, those small changes like that, I think are making a difference. Um, but there's a lot of work that has to be done. And it seems like the more advances we make, the more just like Kurt Lewin says, you know, the more you make social change, the more opposition and pressure you get <laughs> to suppress it. Right. And that's what we're kind of running into right now. I was just going to say, I can foresee difficulties with policy, right? So imagine we, well, we live in a world right now where adultery is basically not illegal, right? I mean, you can just cheat on your spouse, uh, despite the fact that everybody agrees it's a terrible thing to do to your spouse, unless you're in an open relationship. Um and so I can imagine, like, a husband cheats on her, his wife. She alienates the child from him. Um, now, she could have easily not have alienated had she said the right words. Had she just said, he still loves you, but he did cheat on me, and that's awful. Like, and then that now, just with the simple change in language and approach, has shifted from est estranging, essentially, or, you know, having accountability for cheating on the relationship um, to alienation and in a world where that's illegal where alienation is legal now the parent the parent the mother loses her child as a consequence of just like the regular social consequences of cheating right this is kind of what it's like if you cheat on your spouse you, you you know these are the consequences you get and so i can imagine like until we kind of work out a system where everybody knows that this is a problem and it has these negative consequences it would unfairly treat people who kind of deal with difficulties in their relationships with alienation, not knowing that it is harmful, not knowing that they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. There needs to be policy. a lot of, yeah. yeah, there needs to be a lot of coaching, a lot of education. And there's always the risk of people lying about it, right? There's always a risk of people saying I'm being alienated. And I'm not. And when they're actually the alienator, um, right. we find that with domestic violence too. I mean, you know, in high conflict divorces, there's a lot of false allegations of abuse, despite what advocates say, the research does not support that <laughs> research shows that there's a lot of unsubstantiated allegations that are made. Um, but that's part of what some domestic violence researchers call legal and administrative aggression is that people will use allegations of abuse or court systems or police as a strategy to try to get control and abuse the other person. And that's something that we find in alienation cases about half of parents do. Um, 
Not all, but a lot of parents do. But this doesn't mean then if, if a parent tries to abuse the system that we should say, well, we have to outlaw parental alienation or outlaw because that'd be the same as saying, well, sorry, you can't make any allegation of domestic violence just because some other people lied about it. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, you know. I mean, the, the answer to this is better education and more research and more resources for parents so that they understand what happens when you do these things. Like if you have a child come to you and say, mom said that you cheated on me and you did all these things. I mean, yeah. So what's a parent to say to that? They, no high conflict class that you would take at divorce teaches parents on how to handle that. I've not come across one. Um, they talk about, oh, you should always have, allow your kids to have pictures up of the other parent. You should do these other things, but not how do you handle it when your kid's being alienated in a way to not make it worse, right? Um, there's a lot of good self-help books out there, but parents have to, they, they come across them too late usually. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, the best answer to that is, is very unfortunate you were told that. I'm sorry that you learned this information, I have a different perspective on what happened, but you know what? That's an issue between your mother and I. And I'm not going to talk about that with you. But know that I have a different opinion about this. And leave it at that because the kids should not know that to begin with. <laughs> they should have not got given, given that information about how the relationship ended. That never should have been part of their... You know, I have kids who like, they somehow like write to a judge and they say... No one told me to write this letter, but I wanted you to read this before the court hearing. Okay, you're 14. How did you even know that there was a court hearing? Like, you know, second of all, who, of course, somebody told you to write to them. You had to have gotten the judge's name from somebody, right? Um, there are certain things that you can draw boundaries as a parent and say, this is something between your mom and I or your dad and I. And I'm sorry that you've come to learn some things about it, but you know what? This isn't a place for you. And, and your role as a child, we, I love you. Your mom loves you. That's all you need to know. This is between us. It is, and it's hard because a lot of parents want to explain themselves. They want to correct the record, right? They want to help the kids see that what they heard is not right. But what that does is it makes it worse. It puts that kid in, in a worse bind, Especially if they're not being alienated yet, it puts them in like that loyalty bind because um, loyalty conflicts are another kinds of thing. I haven't even talked about that, but that's where both parents are acting bad, right? That's where mm. both parents are doing things back and forth. And it, it's like a, it's like that old movie Kramer versus Kramer. If you've ever seen that one, it's like two parents just, and those could be horrible situations. Like Tamara Fifi has published research on this where the kids feel like they're stuck in the middle and their parents are trying to pull them in both directions. That's a totally different dynamic than alienation. Because mm -hmm. in that case, it's not like one parent's trying to dominate and control the other parent. It's just they've got the kids stuck in the middle between them. And, you know, sometimes I've seen sometimes cases like that turn into alienation where sometimes the kids just can't take it anymore. Like they're stuck in the middle and they're just they could be better just to pick a side and move on and just be left because because they just don't want to be part of the conflict they just <laughs> no kid wants to be part of the conflict yeah so um now it's for intervention oh boy i mean I, I could i could spend another hour i know we don't have time but there's been a lot of research now um 
largely focusing on severe alienation. Um, there are some people who are developing interventions and clinical kind of approaches to dealing with more moderate and milder alienation to try to prevent it from getting worse. A lot of that involves intensive work with the alienating parent to help them try to stop their behaviors <laughs> and identify what they're doing. But that entails a parent who's motivated right? You know, and is willing to do that. And that's yeah. not always the case, sadly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to get into, you, you briefly kind of hinted at some of the resistance to making progress in this area and doing more on a policy level and research and, and uh, clinical applications. And while you've been doing a lot of great research and public service in this area, I also know that you've suffered a bit personally because of you know, some of this work. And this is one of the reasons why I admire you as a scholar and a, a, a colleague, because you're speaking truthfully and you're speaking with evidence. But it seems like some folks in the general public don't really like the message you're sharing about parental alienation, especially when it comes to gender and abuse. Um, I guess we might say you've been the target of some cancellation attempts. So uh, I'm, I'm curious what this has been like for you and if you have any suggestions for how universities or other organizations or employers should respond when there's some kind of public outrage toward someone as a result of their work. Oh, boy. That is a hard question to answer because it is not easy. This has been probably one of the most challenging things I've done. And people ask me, why do you keep doing research like this? You're attacked constantly. Um, and I, I knew that kind of going in. I guess I didn't realize a lot of the people who were kind of the in the forerunners of this field, like the beginning folks, they were doing research at a time when social media wasn't as um, um, kind of impactful. And so I, I deal with a lot more of the social media attacks. And so sadly, I used to be very active on social media, like a lot of different platforms. And now I can't even be on it. I mean, because if I read it, I mean, maybe famous people, they have PR people who can filter it for them. <laughs> I don't have anybody to filter the nastiness that comes in um, and the anonymity of people on social media, I think, gives them even more license to do that. And I'm not a person who's like equipped to do that. I'm just trying to do the best research I can to help make good decisions for families. And, and then because it challenges, I think, the gender paradigm about violence, that women are always victims and men are always perpetrators. And there's a belief that all violence is coercive control. And that's not true. There's a lot of appealing to ignorance of the general public about science in some of the communications. And I know that we're not unique, like people who study parental alienation, what we're dealing with is not unique. I and mean, we see this in, you know, the vet, people who study vaccines, see this in climate science. Um, and in fact, I have a special issue that I think we're about to have approved um, through the Journal of Social Issues on science denial. And one of the areas that we're recruiting papers for is in the area of criminal justice and, and family law. There was a horrible book that was published a year ago by um, oh, Jean Mercer, who's one of my biggest critics, evidently. <laughs> she's the one who's been publishing all this stuff, and she's not even a scientist. She's not a, she's not, she doesn't do research. But she wrote a book co-authored with Margaret Drew on, the, it's called Challenging Parental Alienation. 
And it's supposedly a book written for clinicians or lawyers on how to essentially tear down expert witnesses in court. And we we analyzed, we had a, a team of us go through this entire book and the amount of science denial and misinformation in it is astounding. So we wrote a whole review, 100 pages, where we documented all the things that they were doing in this book. And we made a report to the Committee on Publishing Ethics. We, we first tried to contact the publisher to call their attention to it, saying this is a real problem. This isn't a difference of opinion. This is flat out misinformation and disinformation, and it can harm families. The research shows this, and yet these people are saying this. And most of the authors were lawyers. They weren't scientists. And so we tried to call attention to the publisher. The publisher didn't do anything. So we went to the Committee on Professional uh, Publishing Ethics, and they've been allegedly investigating this now for six months. And we're under a gag rule to release our report until they finish their inquiry. Mm. But they've been pushing us off. They told us it only take like two months, three months. And so then we went to Retraction Watch, which you're probably familiar with. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they are very familiar with COPE and how COPE really tries to delay things. And turns out the publisher of this particular book in question is one of the biggest sponsors of this committee and funders of it. So, of course, what are they going to do? They're not going to sanction them or do anything to get them to withdraw this book. Or I don't even know how you can make corrections because it's so bad in every chapter. I mean, the only thing you could do is withdraw it for publication and make a formal statement about it. And that's what we're kind of asking um, that they do. Because it could be so harmful. I mean, the misinformation in there, it's, it's, I, I'll share it with you once we get it up. I mean, we've decided, yeah, yeah. we've decided we're going to publish it soon on um, two websites that we have. And then we're going to write some book reviews for it. But we've, we've had to hold off on doing that till they do this investigation. Um, but now, um, Dr. William Burnett, he's down at Vanderbilt University. Um, he and I've decided we're going to write something for Retraction Watch about it. Um, and Good. about experience with their professional or their publishing ethics. Um, mm. Because I think the only way we can really address this is to call attention to it. Um, and like, cause that's what other public health people say to do is you have to shine a light on it. You can't ignore it because it's going to, you got to call it out, name it as science denial and, you know, let it go. Um, but then I do want to mention one other thing. There was a recent law that was passed. Um, the, you know, the Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized in March um, of last year. And after it was voted on, there was an appropriations bill. So after it leaves the House and Senate, it goes to the Appropriations Committee. And this law, it's called Caden's Law, was attached to it there, meaning that it, it didn't go up for any public debate. It was just added on as like to the law at the end. And so, of course, they approved it because it was just a budget meeting. <laughs> it was just like, OK, we're funding all these things. And so it got signed into law. And this particular law, it's it was written by domestic violence advocates who uh, Joan Meyer, being one of them, at her Center for Judicial Excellence at George Washington University, she had published a paper in 2019 where it's not published in any peer-reviewed journal. 
It was published on an internet archive at her university. And I confirmed with the people who run the archive that it was not reviewed by anybody, meaning she just uploaded her paper. And this particular paper reports results of a study that she did, that she got funding from, from National Institute of Justice. And she claims in her paper that she, um, that mothers are losing custody, like left and right, to fathers who are abusive, and that custody evaluators are getting it wrong. Like they're, they're dismissing mothers' allegations of abuse, and they're, they're not taking them seriously. Um, but so when I saw that paper initially published, I said, well, that'd be, that's horrible if that were true. So I looked closely at the methods, and there was no transparency in what she did. Like, you don't know who the coders were. Couldn't tell how she selected her sample. She admits to p-hacking at the beginning of the paper, saying that they amplified on analyses that they had done. And I was like, really? Like, you know, so we we did our own re- attempted replication of that study. And we published that replication in 2021 in Psychology, Public Policy and Law. And we found no support for any of her hypotheses. But I mentioned that because verbatim from that paper were findings taken and inserted into this law, Hayden's Law. Mm-hmm. So they did not acknowledge any other research findings that directly contradict what she was reporting in that finding section of the law. And the law says that the only people who can testify in cases where there's an allegation of domestic violence are domestic violence advocates or clinicians who work with domestic violence victims. No scientists, no police officers, nobody else has to be only those people. Second. It, it, it dictates training so that the only training that judicial officers and other people can get about domestic violence has to be from one of these people, an advocate. So it's a gender bias and it can only be on particular topics. What's interesting is that they left out psychological abuse and neglect, even though that's one of the most common types of abuse that mothers are found guilty of. But they're not allowed to teach about that anymore. There's also um, limits on, you know, GALs or guardian ad litems and other people and the kind of training that they can get. And so what's very concerning about this particular bill is it's based or this law is now it's based on this research that is not supported by other scientific research. And now it's being implemented in states across the U.S. Um, And there's attempts. So unless it's implemented, the law can't go into effect. Um, and there's been a lot of restrictions now. Luckily, we've had advocates who've been able to limit how much money states get as an incentive to implement it. But um, if it is implemented, it could be really bad. Um, like there, it says, essentially, you can't even talk about parental alienation in court, mm. even though there's <laughs> like it's been admissible as a problem in over like 3,500 cases across the U.S. Like, I mean, it, it's it's it passes the threshold for admissibility of scientific evidence. So that's a real problem right now that we're dealing with on a policy level and a, and a legal level. Um, and it's an uphill battle. It's like, I feel like the science, no matter how much I try to disseminate it, it's not reaching the people who are making decisions. I mean, cause it's like a machine, the, the domestic violence lobby, I hate to say it. I mean, they have a lot of people in the media and they have a lot of reach and they have a lot of money. Yeah, I'll admit that I, uh, prior to our interview, I was just kind of reading the papers and hadn't come across the ProPublica investigative journalist piece, nor uh, some of the 
articles by Joan Meyer. And so I think maybe we should circle back around, Dylan, to this topic of like the critiques and like what that all means and trying to make sense of that. We did a similar thing with um, with a scholar who studies abortion and was basically kind of arguing that abortion is, is bad for women. And we kind of took a deep dive on one of her papers and discovered like that's not consistent with the the, the, the larger body of literature on the topic and um, did that. So, so yeah, we might circle back around and maybe have you on again, or maybe have on Joe Meyer, uh, Joan Meyer and just try to pick her brain about, you know, what, what exactly is the dis- decision? Because to me, it seems like, uh, and I'm sure Joan would say the same for herself, and clearly it's true for you. We all just want to have a better world where parents have a better experience with their kids and kids have a better experience with their parents. And I think there, what what seems to be going on is there's a faction of people who think that this new development of parental alienation is going to make it harder to hold abusers accountable. Um, and I, I think like that seems challenging. That does seem like a legitimate challenge uh, to like, like we were talking about earlier, it's a balancing act of like recognizing that sometimes bad people do bad things, but also we need to like be balanced in the way we present that to children. And so it does seem complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's, that's the issue. Like, you know, I've had advocates try to talk to other advocates and try to bridge this divide. Now I, I have no problems. Like there's a lot of domestic violence researchers and scholars I work with and collaborate with who fully recognize parental alienation and they, um, and they, they understand what it is I'm talking about and all that stuff. It's just this sort of like extreme group. Now, Joan Meyer is not a scientist. She's a lawyer. Um, and so, and she's an advocate. You know, and so she's um, she's testified in some cases again, like on the other side that I've been on. Um, and she's been actually not allowed to testify about science in court because the the through voir dire they said you're not a scientist. She never even took statistics mm-hmm. as an undergrad, so she doesn't. <laughs> she's a lawyer, and so she's an advocate. She she argues her position. Um, and I was on a case once recently in California where the mom was being alienated and she was a victim of domestic violence. And she had been asked first to testify on the case before they brought me on. And uh, she said no, because she had some personal issues. Um, but then later, and so I was brought out of the case. And then later she, she circled back and said, well, things have kind of improved. I can help. And they said, well, no, we've already retained Dr. Harmon. And her email response was pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> At first, it was like, oh, well, she's normally very dangerous for women, but I guess in this case, it's okay. How am I dangerous for women? It's just because I recognize that men can be victims of psychological abuse by mothers. Like, I mean, that that's she. It's outside of her understanding of the world. Right. And if you look at her code book that she uses for her study that she finally published a year after her, she posted her paper online. She says that, you know, essentially if, if a court says, or a clinician says that there's reciprocal violence or situational couple violence, if that's what happened in the relationship, they coded that as dismissing mother's claims of abuse because she doesn't recognize that abuse can be situational couple violence or common couple violence or these other kinds of violence that can happen. She only recognizes coercive control. Um, And that's sad. And in her writings, like in the book, 
critique, I'll share it with you when we, I can send it to you separately and we just can't yeah. like publicly post it, but you can take a look at it. Um, but the one thing that she says repeatedly in her papers is that parental alienation is just a term that was invented to provide a legal defense for abuse of fathers when they've been facing allegations of abuse in court. Like, no, it's actually not the, not how the term evolved. That's right. completely, it's like, that's like gaslighting, you know, trying to you know, appealing to the yeah. ignorance of the reader. Um, and it's, it's appalling because I mean, I'm like, does she not read the research or is she deliberately ignoring it? Is it what we call hermeneutical ignorance? You know, like where people are just kind of blind to it. Like if you share it with them, they still can't see it. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't care what gender the person is. I just don't want kids to be abused in this way. I don't, you know. Um, and I, yeah, the answer isn't to say alienation needs to be discredited, not allowed in the courtroom. Like, that's not the answer. The answer is yeah. we should learn more about it and arm people with the right tools to better know whether it's happening or not. Is there domestic violence or not? Is You know, we need that. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- this has been really enlightening. I-, I think we do need to wrap up. Um, Many, do you want to do our final question? Yeah, we have a question we tend to end the show on, and it's more of a philosophical question. So um, just kind of hope you have a good uh, imagination. So imagine you're in another dimension. And in this other dimension, there is a panel of dials, and all of them control one aspect of human be- uh, human behavior, or human nature, right? So you can turn up any dial or turn down any dial and the moment you think about it it just pops into in in front of you so let's say you want to change uh how tall people are that dial just manifests in front of you and you can adjust it up or down um and so it can be small things like how tall people are but it could also really be really big things like how how much murder there is in society and so you can just pick a dial and then move it and change it change something about human nature to make the world a better place what would you change you're talking the human nature that leads to outcomes or change the outcome. <laughs> Could, be one. Could be either yeah, one. Okay. Oh boy. Um, let me think here a second. I think increasing people's empathy would be it. Because if the, if, you know, for people who do this kind of aggression and other kinds of aggression too, a lot of it is stemming from either personality disorders or other things. And that's a result of people not being able to have empathy, you know, for Mm -hmm. the people around them and understanding the impact it has on their behaviors and has on the people around them. If you have more empathy, I think you can be a more amenable change. (laughs) On our next episode, Paul Bloom's book against empathy. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not a popular opinion, but uh, I don't think it's going to change everything at all. For sure. In in fact, I think that's not the first time someone has given this answer in the in the sub below twenty episodes that we've done. So I I think I think yeah I I I haven't read that book, but my intuition is that empathy is helpful not maybe not for everything, but is is good for other things. I think he advocates for compassion as an alternative, which I I'm totally down with that too. Like yeah, absolutely. I wanted to say improve people's perspective taking, but that's not enough. Right, right. Because you can take people's perspective, but you don't have a uh emotional understanding right on some on some levels the best manipulators are really good perspective takers oh yeah yeah yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even mention that about these alienators. A lot of them are very convincing. They're very very charming. (laughs) Well, thanks again for for being here with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with someone you know. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at A Bit More Pod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.